From understanding a global economic crisis to crunching the numbers at the grocery till, she makes it easy and helps keep more money in your wallet. This is For What It's Worth with Rabina Ahmed Haq. Welcome to a brand new episode of For What It's Worth. I am your host, Rabina Ahmed Haq. Well, we are in the thick of tax season. If you want to file your return, the portal is now open. You can file your return, and if you're owed a refund, you will get it back sooner than waiting till the deadline. Now, I want to start this conversation early this year because a lot of us get really excited when we get that sometimes what feels like a windfall from the government, which really is a tax return, money that you overpaid in taxes that the government is now returning to you, because it's really important to manage this money differently than you manage any other money during the year. So when we get paid, there's obviously a portion that goes towards your mortgage, your bills, your long-term savings. And then there's also some obviously for entertainment and fun, but we budget that and we do that consistently throughout the year. Now, nobody's perfect, including myself. We all sometimes do go over budget, especially during times like the holidays or maybe a big birthday, but we try to keep that rhythm with all of our paychecks. Paycheck comes in, we do, you know, we pay all our obligatory things. We have a little bit of money left over for the entertainment and hopefully we've also saved some money for our future. Now, the money that we get back in our tax return can often feel like it's free money or it's fun money because it's not something that we necessarily were expecting. I, like every other Canadian, am always surprised as to how much refund I'm getting back. It's not something that in January I'll say to myself, oh, I know I'm going to get back $500 this year. It's usually a surprise to me, sometimes a good surprise, sometimes a bad surprise, but it's always a number that I don't necessarily know what it's going to be. Now, the average return amount in 2023, so this was for the 2022 year, was $2,093. That's a pretty big chunk of change that you're getting returned back on average um, as a tax refund of tax that you overpaid. Now, assuming that, that we're, we're on that same trajectory, so we're we're going to be getting back, you know, on average, a couple of thousand dollars um, in our in our tax refund. What do you do with this money? right? Because part of that money could be maybe you got that last minute RSP contribution in and you actually triggered a bigger refund and you have some plans, you know, with that refund, I'm going to fix my roof. I'm going to go on that vacation I always wanted. I'm going to do something special for my spouse. Okay, fine. Or it could be, you know, you diligently were putting money in your RSP and now you're getting this tax refund back and uh, it's not money you necessarily expected. So you didn't really plan on getting that money back. Now, the best thing that you can do in the perfect world is put it right back into your RSP, right? So kickstart your 2024 savings, put it right back into your RSP, and then that is going to give you a bigger refund in 2025 for the 2024 year. You put that back and on and on and on. Now, none of us want to do that. None of us want to take our money and just do boring investments. So my best advice is, is that if you do have some debt obligations, especially high interest debt, Try to pay that off first because that's costing you a lot. Uh, And if you get that paid down, then you have extra funds that you can then invest throughout the year. If you have no high interest debt, if your mortgage is pretty much under control, most of that money should go back into your RSP, say 75%. And then maybe 25% you could use on a planned fun event. It could be a vacation. It could be a night out, depending on how much you're getting back. It could be just something that is spontaneous and fun, but you plan it. So actually, I'm going to take away that word spontaneous. I'll say it can be something that feels spontaneous, but it's actually a planned event. So 
I don't want to make people feel like they have to uh, save all that money back in their RSP because you might have done the hard work to get really your taxable income down and now you're getting that bigger than expected refund. 75% of it, if you've got no other obligations, back in the RSP. 25% of it, if you've got the average $2,000 refund, that's 500 bucks, spend it on something you love. That's my best advice. We have a great show coming up after the break. We're going to be talking about the situation in the rental market across Canada. Let me tell you, it's not fun for anybody looking for an apartment right now. And later in the program, we're going to be talking about credit card debt and how much debt the average Canadian is carrying. I'm Rabina Ahmed Huck, and this is For What It's Worth. You're listening to For What It's Worth with Rabina Ahmed-Hawk. The Canadian Mortgage and Housing Corporation says the national vacancy rate for purpose-built rental apartments in the primary rental market is at 1.5%. That is the lowest level since the CMHC began recording vacancy rates in 1988. This is creating what some are describing as an impossible situation for anyone looking to rent a home right now. For landlords, the high cost of living is leaving them with increasing costs and finding it harder to lease to a loyal tenant. To talk about this, we are joined by someone who has a unique perspective from both sides. Varun Shriskanda is a board member at Small Ownership Landlords of Ontario, where he advocates for landlords. Also, he's a realtor and property manager. Welcome to the program, Varun. Thank you for having me. So, like I said there, you really do see it from both sides, landlord and tenant. Uh, Can you characterize from your point of view what the rental market is like right now. So like you said, uh, rental housing stock is at a really, is at an all-time low. Because rental housing stock is so low, rent prices are insanely expensive. Uh, We recently did a studio condo in Scarborough where we leased it for $2,100 a month. That used to be the price of a two-bedroom apartment, but now that's the price of a studio. Because of uh, such low stock, you you have uh, the high rent prices. Along with that, you have LTB backlogs. So if a landlord has an issue with a tenant, it can take anywhere from uh, six months to one year to evict a problematic tenant. Because of that, landlords have so many rules that they need, uh, so many strict requirements that they have before they're willing to lease a rental unit to a tenant. And that's to avoid uh, a non-payment situation. So tenants are often having to have, provide extensive documentation to prove their the legitimate income, to prove their credit score, to prove that they've been paying rent on time to date. And uh, many times for tenants, if you have a bad score or if it shows on your credit score that you haven't paid your bills, it, it's going to be difficult to rent a place. So, you know, our show is uh, Canada-wide, so just give to give our listeners some some context. Scarborough, I mean, basically Toronto, suburb of Toronto, or um, east, east, east side of, of Toronto, and, and that yes. is not a place where you would normally, historically, have expected very high rents. Uh, in fact, Scarborough's often been an economical, I grew up in Scarborough, I know Scarborough very well, uh, often been a very economical place to live, a place where, you know, you, you, many times, first time, uh, first Canadian, new Canadians end up there because it is uh, cheaper to live there. Cost of living is a little bit lower. I mean, if that's what's happening in a place where we normally expect lower rents, uh, what is going on in places like downtown Toronto or other places where it is always been more expensive to rent an apartment? 
Oh, that downtown Toronto is even worse. Uh, and so what we're seeing a lot of is people can't afford the rent downtown. So they're getting very, very creative, right? So you get a one bedroom condo, but you have two people sharing it and they'll end up using the den as a bedroom. That's because that's the only way you're going to get into a condo unit downtown. Otherwise, you can't afford it on your own. And then again, there, of course, the requirements. If you want to rent a condo downtown, it's you need to qualify at a much higher threshold because the rent's much higher than it is in the suburbs like North York or Scarborough. Now, we hear a lot of stories about uh, what tenants are going through, uh, the kind of stress that many are feeling finding uh, a place to rent. You know, in preparation for this conversation, I've been talking to a lot of uh a, a renter would be renters, so those who are looking for for a place to rent, and how you know they'll show up at a at a place that they had an appointment at, and that place is already rented, like it just hit the market, and it's already rented. Talk to me a little bit about uh, what you're seeing when it comes to just the just the anxiety that tenants are are are, are facing right now, trying to find a, a reasonable place to live. Yeah, that's that. I'm not surprised to hear that. Many times we're leasing rental units in uh, 24 hours. Sometimes we recently did a Scarborough bungalow uh, again in the east side of Toronto in Scarborough, a bungalow home over there. We leased it in two days. Um, the problem is, is the tenants are entering the rental market and they have more competition today than they have ever had before. Because of the high interest rates, we have a lot of homeowners who are selling their houses because they cannot afford the mortgage payments, but they've realized that it's cheaper to rent right now. So you'll sell your house, which you have a $5,000 mortgage payment for, and you can actually rent a similar home for $3,000. So now you have uh, former homeowners who are flushed with cash because they recently sold their home. You know they have good credit scores because they were uh, mortgage holders, so the bank qualified them well. And now they're entering the rental market looking for homes alongside the normal tenants, tenants who have never owned a home before. And the former homeowners are doing something which the tenants can't compete with. And that's they're prepaying their rent, sometimes for up to one year in advance. Now, most landlords, they, they're going to jump at that opportunity to take, you know, twenty, thirty thousand dollars at one shot to prepay your rent, you know, as a landlord, you're not going to encounter any non-payment issue with that mm -hmm. tenant. And so the normal renters, those that don't have significant savings, they can't compete with this. And that's why they're losing out on house after house. I recently made an offer on a condominium for a client of mine, and we lost because my client was unwilling and unable to come up with one year's of rent prepaid, which was the counter offer that they had from another uh, tenant. And this sounds like an almost uh, like unbelievable situation that this is now what the rental market is demanding. Now, I uh, explain to me a little bit about how that transaction even happens, because my understanding is landlords are not allowed to ask their would-be tenants to prepay any amount of rent except for first and last month. Yeah, you got it right. Landlords cannot ask for anything on top of first and last month's rent. If a landlord does, the tenant and the tenant provides it, the tenant can later take the landlord to the LTB and get that money returned to them. But this is completely different. Tenants are voluntarily putting up the money. They, the landlords are not asking, and there's a very clear communication from the tenant that I would like to voluntarily prepay one year's worth of rent. 
So in that situation, the landlord is free to accept that cash. There's absolutely nothing wrong with it. And uh, and many times the landlords are doing that. And it's, many tenants are left stuck without a house. So we're talking about tenants, the kind of stress that they're feeling, the anxiety they're feeling, and uh, you know the fact that they show up all prepared and that place is already rented and it's just only recently uh, hit the market as, as, a, as a possible place to rent. But there's also issues on the landlord side. You alluded to some of them, some of them being backlogs when it comes to trying to evict problematic tenants. Talk to me about some of the things that landlords are going through and what you have been experiencing as a board member uh, at Small Ownership Landlords in Ontario. Uh, the things that landlords are experiencing right now that maybe are unique uh, to, to what maybe was happening four or five years ago. Yeah, so at, at the moment right now, we have extensive delays at the landlord and tenant board. So that means if you bring an application against your tenant today for non-payment of rent, you can expect a hearing date in about five months. So if your tenant isn't paying rent, that means you need to wait five months before you can get your hearing date. That's five months of non-payment. That for many small landlords, that's crippling. We cannot sustain losses of five months of non-payment of rent. Small landlords are not corporate landlords. We own, many of us at Solo, we own one to two rental units. If you only have one rental unit and your tenant doesn't pay, you're in trouble. But the corporate landlords, they have the luxury of having hundreds or thousands of rental units. If one tenant doesn't pay, they can offset their losses with other rental units. Um, on top of the delays, uh, you have uh, tenant, uh, um, sorry, you have of unwillingness from police agencies and from the city and from the landlord tenant board to cooperate and work with landlords. We have uh, an issue right now that we uh, have been facing for many years is the use of fraudulent documents or so fraudulent credit scores, fake pay stubs, fake job letters, um, fake bank statements, things like that to secure a rental. Now, we've spoken to the police and they've told us that this is outright illegal. It is a criminal code offense to falsify uh, um, bank statements, to falsify employment records or pay stubs. But we've been unable to get police agencies to actually lay charges. Now, we, we have a handful of uh, cases where the police have actually gone ahead and charged the tenants. But for the most part, we're told by the cops, just it's a LTB matter. It's a landlord-tenant mm -hmm. board matter. There's nothing we can do. Um, so uh, being a landlord in Ontario, and especially a small landlord in Ontario, all the cards are stacked against you. You really need to be well-prepared and really carefully screen the tenants that you're uh, letting into your unit. And it's because of that that the tenants are getting extremely frustrated. Because I, I, I know very, very good very well-qualified tenants who today are having a difficult time securing a simple condominium or an apartment rental. And it's because of the competition and the extensive requirements that some landlords have. We're speaking to Varun Sriskanda. He's board member at Small Ownership Landlords of Ontario. He's also a realtor and a property manager, so has a very unique perspective as to what's going on in the rental market from both the tenant and landlord side. Now, um, you're based in Ontario, Varun, but can you speak to other areas in Canada, especially British Columbia, which often we talk about in side by side with Toronto, uh, with high rents and high cost of living? Um, is this something that you're seeing uh, happen across the country with uh, with just tenants? and landlords finding it more and more difficult to navigate themselves in this current environment? Oh, absolutely. The situation is not any uh, better in BC. There's extensive delays at the LTB, uh, sorry, not their version of the LTB. 
Um, but there's extensive delays there as well. And again, landlords are having to put up with the losses and have to kind of figure out a way to survive and sustain themselves while suffering financially. It's extremely difficult to handle and, and there's little to no help. We have always reached out to our elected officials and we're constantly given cookie cutter responses of mm -hmm. we're here to help and this is who you can reach out to and we've committed this much in funding to the LTB things like that are we've heard time and time again but we still can't understand why it takes five months just to get a hearing and, and it's not even the hearing dates because now we've recently discovered a new problem is even after you have your hearing you now need to wait for the written decision to come from the adjudicator. That process can sometimes take two months. So now you waited five months for the hearing date. You waited two months to get your written decision. Now you're at seven months. Then there's about another month to, before you can get a sheriff eviction. Eight, eight months just to get a tenant out for non-payment. And for many people, that eight months of non-payment of rent, that's $30,000, $40,000, depending on how much the rent is, that is something they cannot recover from. So what ends up happening is the landlord will sell that rental unit. And now we've just lost another rental unit from Ontario's rental housing stock. We're not doing anything to incentivize landlords to stay in the business and to remain landlords. Most of us, we want to leave the business. So just about a minute left, Varun, in this uh, conversation. What needs to happen uh, for this situation to get easier for both landlords and tenants? So uh, we, we already know what we need to do is we need to speed up uh, the hearing times. So if an application is filed, we need to give hearing dates in 30 days. Once you have hearing dates in 30 days, I think all the other problems will sort of solve itself. Problems of uh, tenants not paying rent. Tenants are going to start paying rent because they know I can be evicted in 30 days. There is no point using LTB backlogs to your advantage anymore. And uh, landlords are going to want to take a chance on tenants. They're not going to require such strict documentation. If you have a poor credit score, no worries. We'll give you a chance because we know if worse comes to worse, we can still get an eviction in 30 days. But mm -hmm. uh, th that is the only thing I think that needs to happen is get quicker hearing dates. Varun, thank you so much for taking the time to talk to us today. I think you have a very unique perspective, and I'm glad that we were able to uh, have this conversation. And thank you for having me. Absolute pleasure. That's Varun Skriskanda. He's a board member at Small Ownership Landlords of Ontario, where he advocates for landlords. He's also a realtor and property manager. So speaking to really what's happening on both sides, tenant and landlord, when it comes to the rental market right now in Canada. When we come back, Canadian debt levels continue to rise. And most concerning is non-mortgage debt, such as credit card debt, is rising fastest. What does this mean to our overall future when it comes to personal finance? We have more on that with our next Next guest. I'm Rubina Ahmed Huck, and this is for what it's worth. You're listening to For What It's Worth with Rubina Ahmed Huck. Credit card debt in Canada is up dramatically as Canadians deal with a higher cost of living. This is a concerning trend as credit card debt is some of the most expensive to carry. Read the bar at the side of your statement of how long it would take to pay your balance off if you only made minimum payments. Ouch. To talk about how much credit card debt we are in, we are joined by Rebecca Oakes. She is Vice President of Advanced Analytics at Equifax Canada. Hi, Rebecca. Hi. 
Um, first, you know, for the audience's sake, tell us what that means, uh, Vice President of Advanced Analytics. Uh, w- what does your day-to-day job look like? Yeah, sure. I mean, so so typically my team, we will look at what's happening across the credit industry in Canada. Uh, we will also develop things like credit scores. Uh, but generally, we're kind of taking all the information that's on the credit file and just really understanding what's happening uh, out in the industry and kind of why that's happening and some of the trends that we're seeing. And that's why it's so great to have you on because I think it's really important to to see to, to get your perspective of what we're seeing down the down uh, in, you know for the rest of 24, 2024 down the road. I mean, right now, how much credit card debt are Canadians carrying? So overall, credit card debt is around one hundred and sixteen billion dollars, which is a pretty big number, and it's been growing. So. If we go back to maybe before the pandemic, that number was getting close to around 100 billion. We saw big drops during the COVID months because people stopped spending so much on the credit card. None of us were going on vacation. We weren't really going out as much, uh, but it's been creeping back up at a fairly rapid rate. So we're up around 16% compared to 12 months ago, which is which is quite significant. And if we look at maybe kind of the average um, balance of a credit card, so if you're using your credit card, what does that look like? It's actually around um, $4,200, which is a pretty big number. So if you're actively using credit cards, that's the average for all of Canada. And are Canadians paying that 4000 and change balance off? Or are they carrying that over and over uh, 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 each month? Yeah, great question. So we see both behaviours. So we see those individuals who pay off their, their balance in full. We call them transactors. And then we see those consumers that are are carrying a balance uh, from from one month to the next. And that could be individuals who maybe are paying the minimum amount on the credit card or any range up to kind of the full balance. It really kind of varies depending on those those individual circumstances. I can see that on a T-shirt. Aim to be a transactor (laughs) (laughs) to to pay your credit card balance off each month. I mean, that's that's what I've always talked about is that, you know, there's nothing wrong with charging anything to your credit card, but you have to be able, you have to have the ability to pay the balance off in full. Otherwise, you will be paying these, you know, 20, 22% interest rates, which like I've mentioned in the the intro there, um, can take uh, a very long time to pay off if you're only making those minimum uh, minimum, uh, payments. Um, Are there areas in Canada that are carrying more credit card debt? I'm thinking, you know, places like Toronto, Vancouver, where the cost of living is higher. Is that reflected as well in how much credit card debt people in those those centres are carrying? I mean, it it really kind of varies. I mean, certainly we do see um, some of the biggest cities, um, Ontario, you know, being like Toronto or kind of over in in BC and Alberta, we do see those averages being uh, higher than what we see across across the board. I mean, I guess when you look at kind of you know demographics and look at and look at con- the actual consumers, um, typically the most credit active period of your life is kind of when you're around thirty five to fifty five year old, um, and that's really because you know a lot of us at that point maybe we own our own home or maybe we've just you know tend to spend a little bit more on 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 credit. Maybe we kind of book more expensive vacations and things. So when we look at the age range of consumers, it tends to be kind of those middle age ranges where we see some of the average balances kind of more five, six, six and a half thousand um, compared to kind of younger consumers that use it a little bit less. But it really kind of varies a little bit on individual circumstances and things like that. 
So when you are someone that's carrying a high balance on your credit card and uh, you're trying your best to, to pay that balance off, but it's not happening every single month, what does that does that carry over into other missed payments or lower payments into things like lines of credit or mortgage? Um, does the, the would the average person who can't pay their credit card balance off in full also uh, be struggling to make their other payments as well? I mean, the simple answer is yes and no, which is probably not a simple answer. I mean, I mean, you know, using your credit card in itself is not a bad thing. The, the, you know, there's always good reasons to use credit. For example, if you are purchasing you know, a large vacation and you, you haven't managed to save up enough, maybe that's a, a good way of doing it. And typically you might not be able to pay that back in full um, each month. So they don't necessarily um, lead to missed payments elsewhere. The kind of behaviours we see on a credit card, which does indicate perhaps some financial stress is coming in, are things where consumers maybe are using all of the available credits on their credit card. It's something we call utilisation, which is really what percentage of your credit limit are you using? Now, where you see high utilisation levels, that typically tends to link with a higher risk of mispayments elsewhere. Um, also, you know, sometimes we look at how that's changing over time. So are consumers using more and more of their limits um, over time? That can sometimes be an early warning sign that perhaps someone's, you know, experiencing um, some potential financial stress coming through. And the other thing we tend to look at is the payment behavior on credit cards. That can be a really good indicator of how likely an, in an individual is to miss payments going forward. So, again, we talked about paid in full, but actually... Are you someone that used to pay in full and now you continually don't? Or are you someone who maybe was paying 50, 60% each month and now you're only making the minimum payments? That can be a bit of an early warning sign that, that someone potentially um, might be experiencing some financial difficulty and maybe um, potentially that might lead to higher risk in future. But generally speaking, just, just having a high credit card balance in itself doesn't necessarily lead to... Um, you know, missed payments elsewhere, it can be a bit of an indicator, but it's more kind of some of those different behaviors I just mentioned that really um, kind of do, do, do kind of highlight that a little bit more. We're speaking to Rebecca Oak. She is Vice President of Advanced Analytics at Equifax Canada, a credit reporting agency. Uh, you know, Rebecca, a lot of people get really uh, confused as to how credit scores work, how credit reporting works. Um, when it comes to credit card uh, payments, uh, and balances. How does that work when it comes to uh, your uh, affecting your credit score, and and what impact does it have if you if you miss payments, for example, uh, on on something like your credit card? Yeah, I mean, so there are different things that go into a, into a credit score. You know, how you use credit cards is one of those um, that does fall into it um, more often than not. I mean, I think the key thing to think about is what a credit score is doing is. It is effectively predicting the likelihood of a consumer missing a payment in the next 12 months, 24 months. So good payment behavior is going to help your credit score. So if you are making, you know, continually making payments on your credit card, that's a good thing. And that's going to help your, your credit score. If you miss a payment, you know, that can be an indication that, you know, there's something really starting to impact, you know, how, we, how you are able to keep making your credit commitment. So one missed payment is going to knock your score a little bit, um, you know, typically. Um, if you make several missed payments, then that will have more of an impact and certainly will uh, drop your, your credit score. Now, that doesn't mean it stays there forever. You know, as you start to rebuild and repay and 
and kind of you know uh, demonstrate again that good payment behavior, your score will naturally um, increase. The other thing that really impacts your score when it comes to, to credit cards is that utilization, that percentage of your limit that you're using. And again, it's mainly just because you know behaviorally, what we tend to see is if someone is fully using all the credit that's available, they might be more likely to miss a payment in future. And so that often does form part of scores as well. So maybe keeping your utilization down a little bit. So the percentage of your limit the, that you are using, that can help your your credit scores as well. Um, but yeah, I mean, it, it certainly will impact if you miss payments. Mm. Um, Rebecca, as we look ahead to 2024, are there any trends that you're seeing uh, when it comes to not just credit card debt, but all kinds of debt, the way that we're handling our debt obligations, uh, especially considering this year, we're expecting a lot of Canadians to renew their fixed term mortgages, and that might put them in a very different financial situation. What trends are you seeing for for this year? Yeah, and it's 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 been a difficult period. You know, I think we've all experienced the high cost of living. We've had inflation's been high um, for quite a period of time now, and in a lot of cases, incomes haven't necessarily kept up with that inflation. So it's it's definitely been been challenging. Um, you know, the good news is the latest numbers, inflation is coming down. Um, but we still have, you know, as you mentioned, things like mortgage renewals with high interest rates coming up. Rental prices are still on the increase. Um, so, you know, that is definitely going to be having a knock on impact, you know. And, and what we always say is as much as you possibly can, particularly if you have a mortgage renewal that's coming up, you know, just start thinking about what that's going to do to your payment. Look at the options, work with your lender around, you know, what's available to you in terms of what your payments might be. And therefore, what that might do in terms of knock-on impacts um, to other financial commitments you might have, be that credit or kind of other spending, really. Um, but yeah, it's, it's definitely going to be a challenging year because interest rates are still high. And if you if you want to go buy a, a new car, for example, right now, and you look at kind of some of the loan rates that are on offer, they're much, much higher than they were two, three years ago. And you know, that is a challenge for, for, for consumers who are just trying to, you know, purchase the things that they would do normally. If someone's listening right now and they're getting ready to buy a house maybe next year and they want to you know, figure out where their credit score is, uh, make sure that everything on their credit report is up to date and actually uh, reflects their credit history. Because I know for myself, when I actually uh, looked at my credit report, there were some things on there that did not, that I had nothing to do with them. There, It was misreporting. So you can fix that easily. Uh, how did they go about doing that? Because it can seem like, oh goodness, I don't know how to even get in touch with uh, the right person uh, to to find out what my credit score is, to, to get a copy of my credit report? Well, the good news is that it's free to do that. Um, so, you know, you can go on to our website, which is equifax.ca. There's a whole pile of information on there, not only um, about accessing your credit file and your credit score, which again, it's, it's free to do that now. Um, there's also information about credit scores and different, different ways in which you can kind of help you know, build your credit and your credit scores. So um, you can certainly go on our, our website to do that. Um, obviously, we're not the only credit bureau here in Canada. So there are alternatives out there as well with TransUnion. Um, but yeah, it's free to do so. And as you mentioned, it's really important to kind of check your credit file and make sure there isn't anything untoward that's on there. Because unfortunately, when you're in a period as we are now, where there's a lot of challenges um, on the economic side, the levels of fraud are on the rise. And so it's, you know, it is always good to, um, you know, really check that everything is in order and, and that you haven't got someone else taking advantage of your good credit score to kind of commit fraud. So yeah, definitely worthwhile doing. 
Very good. Especially at this time when it's tax season, everyone's sort of uh, in that mode of getting all their documents together and making sure that they've got all their all, all their all their information is correct. And it's just something I always say at this time is a great time to just check your credit score, check your credit report, and make sure you know nothing has really changed since last year that that doesn't reflect you. Yeah, definitely. Rebecca, thank you so much for joining us today. I think this is really interesting, and uh, you know. Uh, I, and I, I want to say with that term transactional, I think that that's really important that uh, everyone sort of aims for that. Yeah, no, definitely. Uh, Rebecca Oakes, she is Vice President of Advanced Analytics at Equifax Canada. It's a credit reporting agency, like she mentioned there as well. TransUnion is the other one, and you can get your credit report um, and your credit score and figure out you know, what your personal finance situation is looking like and how good of an applicant you are before you go and sign up for a mortgage or try to get a car loan. You'll have a good idea of what your chances are of actually uh, being approved for that. When we come back, have you heard these terms, girl math, soft saving, loud budgeting? Are these new concepts or a rebranding of old personal finance terms? I'm Rubina Ahmed Huck, and this is For What It's Worth. From understanding a global economic crisis to crunching the numbers at the grocery till, you're listening to For What It's Worth with Rubina Ahmed Huck. There's so much terminology that gets thrown around when it comes to personal finance. And in some ways, it's positive because it gets us talking about it. You know, a couple of months ago, girl math was a term that we were all talking about. This idea that was coined by a blogger that if you buy something and return it, it's like you're getting free money. If you pay for something in the future, when you go on that trip or go to that event, it's like a free experience. Now, we know, logically speaking, that that does not make sense. You did pay for it at some point, but it does speak to delayed gratification, right? So you want something in the future, you pay for it now, and you get it many, many months from now, and you're waiting for that thing to happen, but you're doing the right thing with your money by paying for it early. And so a lot of these terms that are coming up this this year, uh, one other blogger, again, made popular, loud budgeting. So rather than constantly saying no to people and making excuses of why you can't meet up with them, be open about your budgeting. Talk about the fact that you can't afford the things that your friends are off, are asking you to do, or you can't afford the events that they that you know somebody wants to to include you in, and that you would you wish your friends would understand that your financial situation is different. So really being open and transparent about our budgeting, and this is you know this authentic way of living has been popular for decades. Where you know a way to really take control of your money is to be honest about what you can afford, not just with yourself but with all the people around you. Uh, another term, doom spending. So when you're feeling a little bit down, you go and you do some retail therapy, which is what we've always called it. Um, you spend because you know you broke up with your, your significant other, or maybe you got some bad news at work, or maybe just feeling bad about the world. There's a lot of heavy stuff happening right now all around the world. And so sometimes that can just make us feel down. And we go online, it's so much easier now to, to scroll and spend. And that's often called doom spending. You don't need it. You just buy it because you're feeling down and you want a little bit of that uh, dopamine. Ooh, I'm going to get that nice little outfit tomorrow, or I'm going to get that thing that I bought in a couple of days and it's going to make me feel great. And even when it arrives, you may not even feel that great, but that, at that moment you feel good. So these terms, as much as they are helpful and getting 
us talking again about personal finance. They're actually just rebrands of old terms that we've had all along, uh, you know, things that we have always been doing when it comes to our personal finances. So budgeting, talking about our money, making sure that, um, you know, we pay for things in advance so that we don't feel the burden of a credit card debt coming after the vacation is over. So, you know, I've been covering personal finance now 15 plus years. You can go back and hear many times I have said, pay for your vacation in advance so you don't get that credit card bill later. And you just feel more stress-free on vacation. You'll feel so much more relaxed when you're knowing that there's no bill to pay because you've already taken care of that. So these reboots of these phrases are a good thing, in my opinion. You know, I'm not a huge fan of girl math. I think that in some ways it diminishes um, what they're really trying to say, which is if you uh, if you if you return something, you actually get money back that you had earned. Um, if you uh, pay for something in advance, it's just going to make you feel better once you're enjoying it because you don't have that credit card bill coming. So these are really good. Uh, ways to live your life. Uh, but the word girl math, I mean, I really took issue with the word girl. We did have a few months ago um, uh, a guest on to talk about girl math who really did explain and help me understand why this term is really powerful for women. Um, but at the same time, you know, it's really sort of pushing this idea that women don't understand money. Women don't really get how finances work. And so let's call it girl math in order to sort of cutesy it up. But it is really um, nice to know that even though this terminology sometimes might not stick to people uh, right away or they might, like me, get a bit irked by it, it keeps the conversation about money going. So if, you know, if there's a new term being coined, skimpflation, shrinkflation, you know, all these things have been happening forever. Uh, companies have always been trying to bring the quality of ingredients down and sell you the same for the same price or the, or the amount that they put in the same bag, you know, uh, maybe 18 cookies rather than 20 cookies, but sell it for $2.99 like they have for many, many months. Uh, they've been trying to do that forever. We've all been, we've all, we've all experienced that. Uh, but now that these new terms just bring them back to light and they make you think again about who you are as a consumer, who you are when it comes to your personal finances. So it's new terminology of old concepts, but I think it is a good thing. Now, another thing I want to talk about quickly before we go is um, AT&T in the States, they had an outage last um, last week, a whole day where people couldn't access their cell phones. And they're offering their customers $5 a day as a credit for this widespread outage. Now, there's two things that are going through my mind when I'm thinking. One, they say $5 a day represents the average cost of a cell phone in the United States. And that really does indicate that the U.S. customer does pay a lot less for their mobile usage, which we knew already, right? We, we already knew that. But it also really makes me sort of chuckle that a huge company like AT&T would only give you the minimum amount back. Like, sorry, you didn't get service for one day, so we will reimburse you that one day. But what about all that backlog of the work that you now have to do? What about all those missed meetings? What about all those missed opportunities? I mean, time is money. And so a lot of people in that one day, uh, you know, places that were affected, Atlanta, Los Angeles, New York, big cities where big business happens, a lot of people couldn't get around their day um, and really suffered because of it, that AT&T is only offering them five bucks 
for the disruption. I think that's a little bit weak. I think they could have gone a little bit further, maybe 20 bucks. I mean, they're a massive company and easily to say sorry, I think they should have stepped up and offered a little bit more. We had a fantastic show today. I really enjoyed speaking today to Varun Skriskanda, uh, the realtor and property manager. Also, he's a board member at the Small Ownership Landlords of Ontario about the uh, what the le- rental market in Canada is looking, right, uh, looking like right now. And it's looking quite bleak for many people on both sides, tenants and landlords. It's a tough go right now. And as well, speaking to Rebecca Oaks from Equifax Canada about credit card debt in Canada and how it is increasingly getting more and more. Average person is carrying $4,000 in debt. And I really liked her term, transactional customer, someone who pays their debt off every single month, their credit card debt every single month. So This week, aim to be a transactional customer. I hope you had a great uh, time with me this hour. I really did. I'll see you back here next week. Same time, same place, same channel. I'm Rubina Ahmed Huck. This is For What It's Worth.